Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we just uh, lift up this time to you, Lord, and ask that you would help us now as we look into your word to understand the supremacy of hope in the priesthood of Jesus. We ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I take that supremacy of hope from the text itself, but you've got to jump down a little bit. As you, tell, as you can tell just from this verse, this is a hard stop. The, the, the thought of Hebrews here flows on and on and on. We're, we're up on a hard break, but there's too much here for me to just move on to five more verses to encapsulate the entire passage or what's known as a, a pericope, a section of the Word of God in context. But if you look further down in verse 19, we are, it speaks there of the fact that his priesthood has brought in a better hope. And so that is the language of supremacy that, is, that fills the pages of Hebrews. He brings a better hope, a better way, a better covenant. We have a better priest. There's a, a, there's a better offering, a better sacrifice. All of this language of better. He's better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. That is the thrust of the book of Hebrews. It is pointing us to the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all of the old institutions of Israel because he himself is their fulfillment. And so he goes on here to talk about really two things under this heading. Verse 19, the better hope, and verse 22, the better covenant. And so right now, the focus that I want to focus on is a better, better hope. And he's got three lines of argument that he's going to argue here. Number one, the old priesthood was not perfect. How do we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ in this section? Well, first, by identifying that the old priesthood was not perfect. That is to say, it could not produce perfection. Look at uh, verse 11 again. Now, if the perfection or if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, so that introduces a conditional clause, a conditional statement, wherein he is saying essentially, it is not. There is no perfection to be found in the old covenant priesthood. Now, let's stop here and consider this word perfection. Because it is important, especially to the theology of Hebrews. The word perfection, teleosis, comes from the telos word group. And now you find that all over the book of Hebrews in, in respect to all sorts of various things. But when you think of the word perfection, really in the English language, what you're talking about is that something has reached the state of excellence, that something has become flawless, that something has become or has come into the ideal state. But in the Greek, it also adds the component of purpose, the component of purpose. So for example, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. Now, what is that saying? Jesus does away with the law, so now we can live lawlessly? Is that what it's saying? Of course not. Now, if you only had the English, you might grapple with that. But because behind the English word end of the law, the word end is telos, which means he is the purpose of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He is the goal of the law. The, the law had a goal. And it was not that people be justified by trying to do what the law required. 
the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ. You know that from Galatians chapter 3, for example. So, again, we are told in the book of Hebrews that the, 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 the priesthood did not produce perfection. Now, in order to show you that this word here, telos, teleosis, perfection, really has the idea of completion, but maybe we can even say consummate completion. We, we, need to, we need to grasp that because the word perfection here is not talking about moral perfection, in this, at least not all the time in Hebrews. For example, in Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 14, we are told that Jesus is sinless. He's also sinless in chapter 7. But we're also told in chapter 2 that Jesus needed to be perfected. So it cannot be talking about moral perfection in that sense. It means that Jesus needed to be brought into the eschatological completion that he was designed to achieve. You say, that's in the word perfect? Yes. <laughs> Eschatological perfection. That means, that means he had to, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he had to go through the heavens. He had to go into the throne room of God. He had to take a seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is Jesus being perfected through suffering. That is, he, he achieved his eschatological goal through suffering. So we're told also that eschatological perfection is something that the Old Testament saints were looking forward to. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, it says that they would not be perfected apart from us. That is to say, not apart from those who would believe in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, the whole church being perfected together. Jesus is also the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that brings our faith to completion. Believers, as well, are said to reach their eschatological goal in Hebrews 12, verse 23, where it refers to the spirits of man made perfect. Total, ultimate perfection is therefore both something that is inaugurated, it is introduced, it is begun, and it is something that is consummated, it is finished, it is completed. That's the way that perfection works in the book of Hebrews. So the whole thrust of this section is to show us that our hope is built on something better than what you found under the old covenant priesthood. We have a true hope, a lasting hope, a perfect hope. That's why he can say in chapter 6 verse 19, it is the type of hope that will anchor our soul. It's an anchor to the soul. It holds us together because it makes us perfect in the sight of God in a positional fashion and then ultimately in a consummate fashion at the same time. And so, initially, what he's trying to set out before us is to show us, look, Jesus came not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. And we looked at Melchizedek, and we looked at Melchizedek, and everything that that means. But there are several reasons why. Jesus is a better priest and has a better priesthood than the old priesthood. Let me just give you a few. The reason why, number one, is because the old covenant priest was designed around, the, the old covenant priesthood was designed around mortal men. You look at verse 8, chapter 7, verse 8. It says, 
in this case, mortal men received tithes, but in that case, one received them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so the priests were mortal men that received tithes from the people. But Jesus is not a mortal man. He has an indestructible life. He has an indestructible life. He possesses all immortality in himself. It's also better because he officiates at a better sanctuary, a better sanctuary. Look at uh, Hebrews 8, verse 5. There we are told time and again that what the old covenant priests were doing were operating under a mere copy of the reality. It says they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And so Jesus, not serving in the shadow, not serving in the copies, he serves in the reality, in the heavenly sanctuary as God's priest. And also, he is better because his sacrifice is better. The sacrifice offered in the earthly tabernacle was not able to produce lasting perfection. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, because there, in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, the author is going to tie this all together, all of it. So let's spend a little time there. Hebrews 9, verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a priest of the good things to come. Now, that's important because some people ask, when did Jesus become a priest? Because in Hebrews, there are certain there's certain uh, passages that seem to suggest that his priesthood only happened at the exaltation when he was resurrected and ascended and went into the holy place and officiated there as the, the priest of God in heaven. But here it says that he came, he appeared, that is, as a priest of the good things to come. And so I would say that Jesus became a, a priest in his life, in his incarnation. He had the, he had the ministry of a priest. You can see that in the Gospels by his intercessory work as well, that he is already operating as an intercessor, a priestly duty. And also the cross, obviously, is where his sacrifice took place, that is, on earth. Now let's go on. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of, bull, of goats and bulls and ashes of, of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, that is a very, uh, that's a very NASB clumsy uh, rendition of the Greek because the Greek is difficult. One of the things you know about Hebrews is it, it's a known fact, and grammars know this, the book of Hebrews is the hardest Greek in the New Testament. So when you go to learn Greek, you don't start with the book of Hebrews. <laughs> you start with 1 John. You always got to translate 1 John because it's the easiest Greek in the New Testament. But Hebrews is difficult. So the choppiness here is because of that purpose, folks, because this author, whoever he was, was absolutely brilliant. That's why because he's so brilliant, so complex, and the things that he's talking about, he wants to get them across with great specificity, and so he can't just glibly go over things. He has to parse things just right and almost difficult at times, but it is worth it if you put in the time. 
But watch this, verse 14. How much more, there's the supremacy language, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, that's a great reference to the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. How much more, we can say, would he not cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You could be part of the old covenant and, and, and you can abide by all of the sacrifices and do all the ceremonies, all the cleansing, all the washing, and yet not have a conscience that is cleansed. Having a cleansed conscience is synonymous with regeneration. In other words, it would be the equivalent of saying you could be circumcised on the eighth day and obey the Levitical law, but guess what? Have no circumcision of heart. Same idea. In other words, you could go through all these religious motions and not be right with God. But under the new covenant, what makes the new covenant so, more, so much superior is the power of the blood. That the blood, we're not talking about the blood of animals. We're not talking about goats and, and heifers. We're talking about the, the spotless blood, the righteous, holy blood of the Son of God who is able to perfect your conscience, to truly, truly cleanse you from within, inner cleansing. And uh, during Sunday school, we were talking about definitive sanctification, meaning a once-for-all setting apart of the believer. You know that that's what happened to you. You might say, well, I don't feel like that. I still feel dirty because the world that I'm around, right? Theologians say he conquers the power of uh, the dominion of sin, but don't expect to be removed from the presence of sin, not in this world, right? But in definitive sanctification, and because of through, re through regeneration, we are set apart once for all through the blood. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. Our conscience has been cleansed because we know our debt is forgiven, right? When your debt is forgiven... And the, and, the, and, the, and the collection agencies are no longer calling your house, <laughs> trying to collect money from you, your conscience is at ease. You know you don't owe anything to anyone anymore. Folks, think of the wonder of the gospel. It's almost breathtaking. It leads a person logically to conclude, if you don't have the mind of Christ, to conclude, huh, what then shall we sin so that grace may not abound? If the, if the gospel is this glorious, if the blood is this powerful, if God is this good, then what that means is basically I can live however I want because it's been done. Now, of course, Paul goes on to say, if you live that way, what you demonstrate is that you are still in bondage. <laughs> because grace is sanctifying. Grace is purifying. Grace is not antinomian. Oh, far, far from it. Hebrews will go on to show us that a person who has been genuinely regenerated, genuinely cleansed, the, heart, his, the, the cry of his heart is not, oh, how much can I get away with now? The, heart, the cry of his heart is, I love to do your will, O oh God. Because the law of God is now written on the heart. And you love it. Your heart bears witness with the law of God. And all of a sudden you say, this is marvelous. So that John says the commandments of God are not a burden. Do you view the commandments of God as a burden? They're burdensome to you? What is required from you in the Christian life? 
And you better, you better examine, do you have a proper understanding of the new covenant and the cleansing power of the blood and the, the purifying power of grace? Let's go on. In Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood, we have the emergence of a priest who is able. This is, this is, this is critical now. He is able to perfect his people. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. One of the things about the book of Hebrews, maybe unique among most of the books in the, in the New Testament, is that Hebrews is its own interpreter. Oh boy. You better, Hebrews is a book that before you conclude something in chapter 7, you better have already looked ahead at chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Because that's the way the argument of Hebrews works. It is clarifying as it goes. It's a, it's a perfect sermon because you've got to keep listening, <laughs> right? You gotta, he gets you on the hook. He makes this incredible statement at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He introduces these incredible concepts about the Son of God and how he's sitting at the right hand of God and made purification for sins for all time. And then he says, now I'm going to back it up. Now I'm going to show you how that works. Now I'm going to show you why in the last days, what Jesus has spoken, what God has spoken in his son is better than what he has spoken in previous times. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. He is able to perfect his people with his sacrifice. Watch this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. This is remarkable. He can never take away. So the priest could be there until he's blue in the face. And if there's an unregenerate, unconverted person who is fulfilling the sacrificial system, the priest is never able to make him righteous. That comes solely on the basis of faith. So we have to think in terms of old covenant, new covenant. Under the old covenant, you had this mixed multitude. You were in the covenant authoritatively by circumcision. But that does not mean at all that you were in God's saving remnant that was in the covenant salvifically. In the new covenant, everyone who is genuinely in the new covenant is saved. I can't put it any other way. There's no mixed multitude in the new covenant. Oh, don't get that confused with, well, I don't know. In the church, there are some people that are saved. There are some people that are not saved. We're not talking about attending a church. We are talking about whether or not the blood has applied to you, whether or not you are actually a member of the new covenant. As a member of the new covenant, your sins have been taken away. Look at verse 12. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. And you remember that part of the furniture in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the holy place, part of the furniture was that there was no chairs. Priests don't sit down. Why? Because it was a future significance, a future shadow, a typology of the fact that those priests are never done serving. But in the greater tabernacle, in the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus sits down. For the first time in redemptive history, a priest sits down. 
Because the work is over. Not getting up tomorrow to do it again. Not putting on the robe again. Not going back into the holy place again to offer sin again. Not going to do it. It's done. It's done. And so, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. That is, um, that's a reference back to Psalm 110. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, that is a critical verse for those that struggle with, does the book of Hebrews teach that I can lose my salvation? Because it says in chapter 6, once a person falls away, you cannot renew them again to repentance. Folks, uh, well, you have to go back and listen to my sermon on that, but here we're being told quite clearly in the book of Hebrews that we have been perfected for all time. We are eternally secure by the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's one argument. The second argument is this, that the law changed with a changing of the priesthood. This is another very perplexing verse. Look at verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity that takes place a change in law also. Now, of course, we're immediately tempted to ask, well, how has the law changed? What does it mean that the law has changed? That has massive implications for theology and for my life. If the law has changed, in what way has the law changed? Ultimately, the book of Hebrews is going to go on to speak way more explicitly about that change as a setting aside, a complete setting aside, as in something that has become obsolete. So look with me, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, and so the second conditional statement means what? It is not faultless. That's what he's saying. It is faultful. There is fault with the old covenant. And he says there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And so in other words, if the first one was capable of producing perfection and capable of cleansing the worshiper and all of those things, there's no reason to seek for a new covenant. But we are seeking a new covenant. And look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 8. He says, when he says a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. You see that? But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. That language, my friends, is the language of eschatology. Is eschatology. What does John say in 1 John chapter 2? Uh, I think it's verse 17. He says, he says, the world is what? Passing away. It's the same idea. The old covenant is passing away. It is ready to disappear. That means a new age has come, and it has broken in to our age in this world. The powers of the age to come have broken in, as it were. Heaven has come down and has already inaugurated, introduced, has already begun the way that it will be in heaven. It's remarkable. I can't, I can't get into that. But that language that Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come. Wow. The kingdom of God has come. But dispensationalists would say, no, the kingdom of God is only something relegated to the future. 
This is not the kingdom. Where's the kingdom? I don't see the kingdom. I've told you this before. Just a simple point of hermeneutics, my dear friends, is if you want to know the nature of the kingdom, follow the king, right? Where is the king right now? Is the king here right now? And you would say, well, yes, because you don't want to say no. (laughs) He's here spiritually. Okay, then the kingdom is here spiritually. Where is the king right now here? Well, he's in my heart. If the king is in your heart, the kingdom is in your heart. That's why Jesus said the kingdom is within. But is the kingdom here everywhere where everyone can see? No, because the king is not here everywhere where everyone can see. That is the consummate kingdom that one day will come. And as Isaiah says, it will cover the earth as the glory of God. How does it go? It will cover the, the glory of God will cover the, the earth as the water covers the sea. In other words, total, total immersion into the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to see one day. So the kingdom of God is already not yet. Already not yet. But here we are said the law has already begun to fade away. Why? Because something better has already come. We've entered into a new dispensation. We've entered into a new covenant administration of God. And therefore, we should expect for the Bible to talk about the first covenant becoming obsolete and fading away. This is my problem with Messianic congregations. Messianic congregations, in my opinion, do not understand the book of Hebrews. That not only do we not celebrate the old festivities of the, the Feast of Booth, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Passover, and do all those things. Most of them do it today in terms of a commemoration. They do it for sentimental reasons or whatever. But actually, it's speaking a contradiction because the thrust of the new covenant is we have gone beyond that now. It's as if Jesus would walk into this door, into the doors of our church, And we look on the floor and marvel at his shadow when he's standing right there. That's why we don't go backwards in redemptive history. That's why we don't go back to the the days, to the new moons, to the Sabbaths, to the feasts. This This is the way the apostles interpreted it. So how has the law changed? I would say it's changed in this, that we are no longer required to meet the moral requirements of the law. We're no longer bound to the law. As uh, as Paul goes on to say, we're no longer under the law. We are under God's sanctifying grace. Uh, Turn with me to the book of Galatians very quickly here. Um, Because I want to point out two things so that we see what the law really does. Paul helps us to understand that the the purpose of the law was for the sake of bringing conviction of sin, and its purpose was also for the sake of Christ's redemption. Christ's redemption. The law is meant to be a supplemental ministry to the promise, to the promise. 
Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? Why was the law brought in? He says it was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law needed to be added to the people of the promise. Why? Because we're sinners. And unless we have the law to keep us in check, we will deteriorate. We will, de- we will, we will, we will go into sinful anarchy. We will unravel, morally speaking. So the law is there for transgression, because of transgressions. In other words, to keep transgression in check. He says, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come. There you go. That's the same idea. Change in the law. When does it change? When the seed would come. Now, he's already identified the seed as Christ in verse 17. He says, and then watch this, to whom the promise has been made. You need to go home and ask yourself, what do you understand about that? The promise was made to the seed that is to come. Who's that, folks? Christ. But I thought the promise was made to Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham's seed, God was speaking yes to Abraham on a patriarch level, but on a messianic level, he was speaking to his son, Jesus Christ. That's remarkable to me. I I get excited about that because I can now use the name Jesus in Genesis chapter 12 because he's there. He is the seed. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. And everywhere where the promise is made about the seed, it is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Now, let me go on here because I'm running out of time. Verse 20, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. In other words, the mediator came to officiate between God and man, not just God. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That's very important. May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law, that is, law-keeping. Verse 22, but the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. See, that's the purpose of the law, to shut everyone up under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those that believe. In other words, the law changed because it only served a temporal purpose. What was the temporal purpose? So that those who are under the law, bound to the law, condemned by the law, would seek salvation by faith and not by keeping the law. Not by keep- Jump down to verse 23 in Galatians 3. But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law, to lead us to faith in Christ. And that's why the law is said to change. Now, my last point is this. Not only, is there a, not only is the old priesthood imperfect, not only has the law now changed because the priesthood has changed, but he also says that the new priest comes from Judah. So the first thing he says, look at verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, that's not Melchizedek, folks, that is now Christ, belongs to another tribe. 
because Melchizedek did not come from the tribe of Judah. For which no one has officiated at the altar. He says, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. What is that saying? What that is saying is that there, unlike the Levitical priesthood upon which the law was built, the law was built on the priesthood that God gave. It was through the priests that the law was, in a sense we could say, was extrapolated. It was given out to the people. But unlike the law, unlike the Levitical priests, the, 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 the priests according to Judah, Moses says nothing. And as a matter of fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 33, where Judah is talked about in connection to all the other tribes, nothing is said about priests. Nothing. As a matter of fact, I think the Spirit did this on purpose. But what is said about Judah is very terse. It's very brief. It's short, and it's like, boom, you move on. I think that has meaning. Because I think the Spirit was saying, I'm going to have these people who read Hebrews Go back to Deuteronomy 33 where I speak of Judah and they're going to find almost nothing. <laughs> because what that does is it sets us up to say that the, the, the priesthood of Jesus follows a different order. There's no stipulation on the law, therefore it's not bound to the law. It's not officiated by the law. It is not governed by the law. It is not, ex it is not administered to by the law. The, the law is not how the priesthood is going to be administrated. It's not going to be dispensed by law keeping. It's going to be dispensed by the new covenant. It's going to be dispensed by faith, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and leave everything else alone. Because God has done all the work to show us that our priest is better that the work is done, that the altar that he officiated at is the altar in heaven, the altar of God, where God received his sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. But if we're careful to notice what the text says here, there's one other thing that's so important. Look at verse 14. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. You know that the author of Hebrews is absolutely brilliant. He uses the word here, anatello, for descended. It's not a common way that you talk about a person's lineage. He's being very, very, very um, particular here. He's using a word in a very precise way. He's being very, very articulate. Why, 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 why? Because the word anatello, is the, it, the literal meaning of the word means to spring up to spring up, right? To spring up from Judah. And if you are a Jew and you know what the language of springing up, anatello, and you understand that that word was used consistently in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation out of the Hebrew into the Greek, you find it over and over and over again with reference to the springing up of who? Well, let me read to you. Zechariah 6.12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will spring up from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Also, Numbers 24, verse 17 What's interesting about Numbers 24 
is verse 14. I'm going to read 17, but in verse 14, this is Balaam's prophecy where he specifies that what he's prophesying about is about the last days. The Hebrew phrase is the latter times, the end times. And in the end times, it says this, I I see him, but not now, and behold him, but not near. A star will spring up on a tello, will spring up from Jacob. You see that? A scepter shall rise up from Israel and will crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And I think what that's saying is, Messiah is coming. He will spring up. So he springs up out of Judah. He springs up out of Jacob. He springs up out of the line of David. That's how Jesus is from the line of David if you read the Gospels. He's from the line of Judah because he's from the line of David. David is from Judah, and that's how Jesus is from Judah. Sorry if it's complex. This is your faith. (laughs) The gospel is built on this. And therefore, when the law is silent about the priesthood of Judah, it prepares the people of God to look for a priest somewhere else. He's not going to come from the tribe of Levi. Don't expect him to be like other priests. He's going to be different. And he gave us a sign, and that's called Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes on the scene, and behold, God ordained a priesthood outside of Levi. And Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And when Christ comes, he tells us that he comes in the line of Melchizedek. Well, he doesn't say that, but Scripture tells us. And in that sense, Christ tells us. And the reason why that's important is because we have a priest, brothers and sisters, that will never fail you. We'll never stop praying for you. We'll never cease to officiate for you. Well, he'll never cease to minister to you as your priest. He will never stop mediating for you. You ever need to go to God? Ever? Do you ever feel like something went wrong in the marriage, in the home, at work, in your own soul, with sin or whatever, and you just feel, I gotta go get with God? I gotta go open my Bible. Turn off all media. I need to open up a page right? I need to go get quiet. I'm in trouble right now. I just fell into sin. I'm struggling right now. Things are hard. I'm not excited about the things of God. I'm worried about the state of my soul, my faith. I'm wondering why I'm in the condition that I'm in. You ever have that need where you just go, I got to go get with God now? My friends, the only reason that you can go to God is because you have a mediator. The only reason that God doesn't put a brick wall up in front of you at that moment and and, and throw all of your sin in your face is because you have a sympathetic high priest whose priesthood does not end. You see why it's so important that his priesthood doesn't end because your Christian life needs it not to end because if his priesthood for you ends, you end and judgment begins. But we have a priest like Peter who was told, Peter, I have prayed for you in these last days as compromise begins to arise on a titanic level where we have entered into a shibboleth moment. You know what shibboleth is? Remember the Old Testament, if you couldn't pronounce the Hebrew word shibboleth, the armies of Israel would slaughter you on the spot because you were not a true Jew, right? We've entered into a shibboleth moment where now we have a new dividing line called homosexuality. 
I know a lot of people are afraid to even use that word right now. I'm not, because I, I know you'll visit me in prison. <laughs> Hopefully no time soon, okay? <clears throat> but we've had this new dividing line where depending on what you do with that, that may just determine whether you're in or out. Period, folks. Period. The gospel is a gospel of holiness, righteousness. It's not antinomian. The word of God cannot be inverted and turned on its head. I want it to mean what I want it to mean. I was at John MacArthur's church last year, and I was telling a gentleman next to me, I said, we're having a conference on homosexuality. And, you know, I took his point. He goes, you need a conference on homosexuality? He goes, this guy was about 80 years old. He goes, I got a sermon for you. He stands up and he goes, homosexuality is a sin. Sit down. And he's right. That's as simple as that. Simple as that. But we're living in a time right now, and I was reminded of this with the death of Stephen. You know how they killed Stephen? So they stoned him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that. You know how they killed Stephen? They killed him with God. Go back to Acts chapter 7. He is saying things against God. They killed him with theology. They killed him by falsely attributing heretical statements to him. How are we going to be persecuted in the first and 21st century? Theologically. You believe this. You believe you're better than people. You believe God's not a God of love. You believe that God is not loving and gracious. You, are you saying God doesn't love me? You see, it's theological. And we had better be on the right side of the argument. And I tell you what, at that point where no one is for you, you had better have someone who is for you. And that his support does not end no matter what this crazy world does. Amen? I mean, am I the only one that feels this way? I feel like an Old Testament prophet now. I was out preaching last night, and I just can't even, I can't even tell you. I, I almost started crying just watching the mass of humanity just reject God. And, and how many people in the name of God are just rejecting God? and rejecting true biblical Christianity, I thought, boy, we've entered into a prophetic time. I feel like Amos. Remember Amos? They told him, hey, get out of here. <laughs> That's what they told Amos. Go prophesy in Judah. We don't, we don't want to hear it here in Israel. Go to Ephraim. Go, go anywhere but here. We don't want to hear what you got to say. Prophesy to us smooth things. Prophesy to us things that we can just live our lives the way we want to live. That's what they're saying. But a true prophet, you, my dear friend, my dear friend, my brother, my sister, you are not called to prophesy smooth things. You're called to be salt and light. You are called to be uh, what they called uh, Paul in and, and, and Acts. I think it's Acts 23. They called him a pest and a troublemaker <laughs> because he wouldn't shut up about the truth. And so in the same way, we are called to be pests. It's the only time you can be a pest. I guess I don't know if there's another way you can be a pest. But the gospel, be a pest. At work, be a pest, right? At the family reunion, be a troublemaker, which means, like Paul, don't shut up about the gospel. Stand up now more than ever. Stand up. 
Open your mouth. As Piper would say, get a look. Raise some eyebrows. We're living in such an age where we need that kind of conviction. And we have a high priest that supports us, and we will never lose his intercession. He will always pray for us no matter what happens to us. He sustains us. He keeps us. He protects us. And you can trust in that with your whole heart. Father, I do pray that you would increase our trust in troubled times. Although right now it seems like life is going by just as it was before, that not that much has changed, but oh, Lord, if we were the owners of a Christian bakery store and we were being sued $135,000, which I don't have, then maybe we would realize, oh no, we are in troubled times. And so God, prepare us for this task. Show us the, the utter relevance of the priesthood of Jesus and why we have better hope. In Jesus' name, amen.